Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Give them a call. You can find the number by going to the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Naples Illustrated, bringing you infinite luxury lifestyles. The website is naplesillustrated.com. We have terrific guests for today's show. We're going to continue the conversation about the question, as the uh, Supreme Court subverted the Constitution since the New Deal, uh, we'll be speaking with Bob Levy, the chairman of the Cato Institute. He's a constitutional scholar, and we'll be discussing economic liberties. We'll also visit with Andrew Joppa, professor at Mercy College and author of Josephus of Oz, and Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston and space architecture and author of several books. His latest is Cyber Warfare, Targeting America, Our Infrastructure, and Our Future. It is May the 20th, and on this day in 1862, President Abraham Lincoln signed the Homestead Act, which opens government-owned land to uh, small family farmers, homesteaders. The act gave any person who was the head of a family 160 acres to try his hand at farming for five years. The individual had to be at least 21 years of age and was required to build a house on the property. Farmers were often also offered an alternative to the five-year homesteading plan. They could opt to buy the 160 acres after only six months at a reasonable rate of $1.25 an acre. That's about 200 bucks for the 160 acres. Many homesteaders could not handle the hardships of frontier life and gave up before completing five years of farming. Uh, it was if a homesteader quit or failed to make a go of farming, his or her land reverted back to the government and was offered to the public again. Ultimately, these lands often ended up by, as a government property or in the hands of land speculators. If, after five years, the farmer could prove his or her homestead successful, then he paid $18 filing fee for the proved certificate and received a deed for the land. Before the Civil War, uh, similar acts had been proposed in 52, 1854, and 1859, but were defeated by a powerful Southern lobby that feared new territories populated by homesteaders would be allowed into the Union as free states, thereby giving more power to the abolitionist movement. In addition, many of the northern manufacturing industries uh, feared the Homestead Act would draw large numbers of their labor force away from and into farming. In 1860, President James Buchanan vetoed an earlier Homestead Act, uh, succumbing to pressure from Southern slaveholding interests. With the Civil War raging and Southern slave-owning states out of the legislative picture in Washington, D.C., Lincoln and pro-Western expansion Republicans saw an opportunity to pass a law that opened the West to settlement. By the end of the Civil War in 1865, 15,000 people had homestead claims in territories that make up the states of Kansas, Nebraska, Wyoming, Montana, and Colorado. Though some of these people were genuinely looking for a new life in the western farmer, our frontier, others abused the program. Much of the land offered by the government was purchased by individuals acting as a front for the land speculators who sought access to the vast, untapped mining, timber, and water resources of the West. The speculators would offer to pay individuals cash or share in the profits in return for submitting a Homestead Act claim. By 1900, settlers, legitimate or otherwise, had gobbled up 80 million acres of land through the Homestead Act. To make way for the homesteaders, the federal government forced Native American tribes off their ancestral lands 
and onto reservations. The first Homestead Act claim was filed by a Civil War veteran and Dr. Daniel Freeman on January the 1st, 1863. The last, though, was uh, filed in 1979 and given to Kenneth D. 80 acres in Alaska. So interesting, the law was actually repealed in 1976. The Homestead Act, so interesting. While facing a charge that his administration is manipulating coronavirus data to help make the case for reopening Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis played down the controversy Tuesday as a non-issue. Rebecca Jones wrote in an email last week that she no longer was overseeing the state's COVID-19 dashboard, which she built and managed for two months. As a word of caution, she said, I would not expect the new team to continue the same level of accessibility and training that I made central to the process during the first two months, she wrote. After all, my commitment to both is largely and arguably entirely the reason I'm no longer managing it, she said. Jones told Florida Today that she was fired on uh, Monday. Then she said in an email to CBS 12, telling West Palm Beach that she faced blowback because she uh, refused to manually change data to drum up support for the plan to reopen. DeSantis spokeswoman uh, Helen Fierre, in a separate statement after the news conference, says Jones was fired for insubordination, uh, exhibited a repeated course of insubordination during her time with the department, including her unilateral decisions to modify the department's COVID-19 dashboard without input or approval from the uh, epidemiological uh, team of her supervisors, she said. There's a full statement here. Uh, uh, in the governor's statement is Rebecca Jones' duties were to display data obtained by the department's uh, staff the team that created the graphics on the dashboard, which made up of multiple people, received data that was provided by subject matter experts, including senior uh, staff members. Jones exhibited a repeated course of insubordination during her time with the department, including her unilateral decisions to modify the department's dashboard without input or approval. So she was let go. Uh, so, Tempest in a teapot, of course, the left is jumping on this like crazy and saying, hey, the data is false and it's we're being subverted and uh, the data is being used to justify opening uh, the uh, economy. Well, the economy needs to be opened. It doesn't matter what the dashboard <laughs> says. We have to open the economy. Now, we've had 40 COVID-19-related deaths in Collier County. That's up three since the last report or since yesterday. 1,030 cases. 249 of them in Immokalee, which is kind of the hot spot in Collier County, 157 hospitalizations, and 10,423 folks have been tested for coronavirus, uh, with 46,944 confirmed cases in the state. Uh, 15,900 of them are in Dade, Miami-Dade County, so it's a third of them in the state. That's an increase of 502 cases on Monday. There was also 55 additional deaths reported by the state Tuesday, increasing Florida's death toll to 2,052. Hospitalizations are 8,494. And there's been 717,000 folks tested in Florida. That's a big number, although it's, a, what was it, about 3 or 4% of the population. The public health agency is helping to coordinate the testing that continues. If you feel like you need to be tested, you can go to uh, North Collier Regional Park today between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Or uh, you can also go, yesterday, 633 folks were tested. Second, second site is the South Regional Library 
on 8065 Lely Cultural Parkway on Friday or Saturday, both days from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. No referral is needed for testing. People must provide their name, contact, and phone number and address is all you need to do. So that's the opportunity. I, for one, would not want to get tested, but you can if you want. Uh, fi financial markets were down yesterday. Futures are up this morning, about 285 as we speak. Uh, yesterday's sell-off was because of a loss of uh, assurance that this new drug that was being defended, this vaccine for the virus, may not be as powerful as expected. But nevertheless, futures are up now. Uh, President Trump announced an executive order yesterday that aims to make hundreds of deregulations in the age of coronavirus permanent, something that would amount to a massive overhaul of regulatory policy. We've done far more regulation cutting than any president in history, he said at a cabinet meeting yesterday, which was very interesting to observe, and it was uh, televised. The executive order tells regulatory agencies to look at more than 600 regulatory actions, mostly deregulations, but also regulations and guidance taken during the coronavirus pandemic and tell the White House which ones should be made permanent. We've had cases where it would take 20 years to build a highway. You have to go through various agencies to get the same permit, the president said. The order would uh, be, use emergency authority to figure out the best way to identify which other regulations still in place can be suspended to help jumpstart the economy. It'll ask agencies which authorities they will have to take action on that would lead to uh, putting people back to work. And that list should be sent to the Office of Management Budget, or the OMB. The order also, order also relaxes compliance measures overall. Agencies will be told not to over-enforce regulations on small businesses and nonprofits that are doing the best they can, Trump said. The Trump administration has used the pandemic to spur a deregulation campaign, notably uh, removing age regulations to telemedicine, removing barriers to accelerate coronavirus vaccine or cure development. At the same time, Trump has also ruled back, rolled back clean air, water regulations, and vehicle emission standards enacted by the Obama administration. <laughs> by the way, uh, the Obama administ uh, Obama's decided he's going to wait for his portrait hanging in the White House until Trump is no longer in the White House. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So uh, former uh, Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn filed a petition with the U.S. Court of Appeals for District of Columbia Circuit Court on Tuesday asking the criminal case against him be definitively dismissed as requested by the Department of Justice. It also seeks to end the appointment of court of advocate and reassign the case to a new judge, which certainly should be done. I don't know if you've been following the case, but Judge Emmett Sullivan is being a zealous as an activist judge wanting to uh, really punish Flynn. And I suspect uh, the Trump White House for uh, well, the, what has uh, been done. Totally unjust. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Excuse me, I had to clap, uh, cough. Naples' longest established air conditioning company, also by Naples Illustrated. Uh, visit NaplesIllustrated.com. We're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Thank you. 
I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Shore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards with six full productions this season. But did you know that Gulf Shore Playhouse brings unique theater education programs and opportunities for children, teens, and adults alike? Education is a vital component of Gulf Shore Playhouse's mission, providing programs aimed at enriching the lives of our children, teens, and students of all ages. Each offering provides real-life skills and learning experiences that are invigorating, nurturing, and readily accessible to every member of our community thanks to the scholarships and reduced-price programming for our region's most deserving students. From in-school residencies and pre-professional theater training to community partnerships, audience engagement, and student matinees, the goal is to inspire creativity, encourage self-expression, and support the blossoming of self-confidence, collaboration, and a deep appreciation for the arts. With each passing year, Gulf Shore Playhouse continues to touch the lives of tens of thousands of students throughout Southwest Florida. Isn't it time that a young person in your life finds out more? For more information about student camps and the Teen Conservatory, visit the website golfshoreplayhouse.org. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And the new season production is out. You can find out about it and get tickets by visiting the website, uh, gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa, professor at Mercy College and author of Josephus of Oz. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. Bob is an author also. He's written several books. He's also uh, a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. Libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C. and devoted to private property, free markets, securing individual rights and limited government, C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. So we've been talking about uh, the question, has the Supreme Court subverted the Constitution since the New Deal? And uh, we've covered a number of topics. Let's talk about economic liberties. The Supreme Court seems to be willing to rein in government regulations when rights like free speech and religion are at stake, but other rights, such as property rights and freedom to contract, are regulated without much objection from the court. Have our rights been divided into categories with some rights getting more protection than others? The answer is, unfortunately, yes. Uh, economic liberty includes the right to form your own business without unwarranted government uh, restrictions. But the Supreme Court decided that uh, 
the right to contract and to own and use property, those rights get less protection than other so-called fundamental liberties. So, in effect, our rights have been bifurcated. I mean, the court vigorously protects some rights, like voting and those rights that are set out in the Bill of Rights, speech and religion and protection against unreasonable searches, and even privacy, which is nowhere in the Constitution, Mm -hmm. uh, but minimally protects other rights, like the right to make an honest living. Uh, We're seeing that in spades during the uh, shutdown. And it was all done with this a single footnote in a case that every law student studies. It's called U.S. v. <clears throat> Caroline Products back in 1938. And because of that footnote, the court vigorously reviews government regulations, but only if they infringe on this, what's called a fundamental right. Hmm. So what does it mean to say the right is fundamental? Well, to, to qualify as fundamental, the right has to be, and these are these are terms from the Supreme Court's opinions, implicit in the concept of ordered liberty uh, or deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. So how a right is defined, whether it's defined narrowly or broadly, makes all the difference and, in effect, dictates the outcome of uh, litigation before the court. And for an example of that, um, we've talked about this case, Raish v. Gonzalez, you know, where a sick person claimed a fundamental right to use medical marijuana in California where it was, it was legal. And she had a doctor's order. Uh, but the Court of Appeals characterized that right as the right to use marijuana for medical purposes. And so that was not fundamental. Race lost that case. Medical marijuana, according to the court, isn't required for ordered liberty, nor is it deeply rooted in the nation's traditions and culture. If the court had adopted Raish's characterization of the right, which was much, much broader, and that is the liberty to do what she wanted with her own with her own body to pursue a less painful life, if the court had accepted that, she would have won the case, but she did not. Hmm. So can you give us an example of a case that went the other way? Yeah, um, a case down in Texas, Lawrence v. Texas, a famous case. The Supreme Court overturned uh, Texas regulation that criminalized uh, consensual homosexual sodomy. And Texas lost that case. Why? Because the court characterized this regulation as barring uh, what it termed a relationship within the liberty of persons to choose without being punished as criminals. So imagine if the court had said the right involved was just about gay sex, then it wouldn't have been deemed uh, fundamental. So, you know, you ask yourself which characterization is correct, and the answer is they're both correct in a sense. I mean, Raish is trying to live with less pain, but she's also using medical marijuana, and Lawrence is pursuing this personal, private, consensual relationship, but he's also engaged in homosexual conduct. So, you know, the court can rule how it wants based simply on whether it describes the right broadly or narrowly. And and that's the foolishness of bifurcating our rights into these two categories, fundamental and non-fundamental. Our argument at Cato is that all rights, whether they're enumerated, whether they're unenumerated, whether they're fundamental or non-fundamental, have to be rigorously protected uh, by the courts. And that's especially true 
for economic liberties where the regulations really have been designed to protect these politically connected parties uh, from competition. And th- those regulations are routinely rubber-stamped uh, by the courts. Yeah, it's just so. Just a, this thought comes to mind that the Peter Principle applies everywhere, including the Supreme Court. So, absolutely, it absolutely so I, does. I know the Institute of Justice, uh, for justice, I should say, specializes in economic liberty cases. It's a great organization, and you're on the board of the Institute for Justice. Can you tell us about any recent cases of interest? You know, maybe the most outrageous uh, case. Um, um, was this case of Flynn versus Holder was a challenge to the National Organ Transplant Act. So every year there are about 3,000 Americans who died because they can't find a bone marrow donor. Um, And minorities are hit especially hard. Mm. So common sense suggests that if you offer people a modest incentive to donate, to attract more bone marrow donors, that act itself would produce more donors. But we have a federal law that makes it a felony, punishable by up to five years in prison. The National Organ Transplant Act passed back in 1984. It says if you get compensated for for being a, a, a bone marrow donor, that's just as if you were operating in black market organ sales. Oof. So, you know, giving, giving a, if you give a college student a scholarship for donating <clears throat> bone marrow, that would land everybody involved, the doctors, the nurses, the donor, even the patient in federal prison. Absolutely absurd, and the Institute for Justice uh, litigated that case. Hmm. So, so how did the court, uh, how did it turn out? Well, IGA argued that this act, uh, the criminal ban, violates equal protection because it arbitrarily treats bone marrow just as it does kidneys or lungs, and which makes no sense because bone marrow, unlike kidneys and lungs, replenishes itself in just a few weeks after it's, after it's donated. Mm-hmm. So the closest comparison is blood, mm-hmm. which is also self-replenishing, and compensation for blood donations is, is perfectly legal. So the appellate court ruled in our favor and, and held that the uh, this National Organ Transplant Act uh, <clears throat> didn't apply to the most common method uh, for donating uh, bone marrow. And then the victory became final, um, and uh, the victory became a new tool in IJ's fight against uh, uh, these these restrictions, as well as a new tool against deadly disease. Uh, when the Attorney General then uh, decided not to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, so the appellate court was the last word. Um, a year later, uh, the Health and Human Services tried to circumvent that victory, and I.J. again was forced back to court and uh, finally got HHS to withdraw its uh, its its uh, rule back in 2017. So it turned out to be a final victory. And a, and a big one. Yeah, uh, Institute for Justice is a terrific organization, and, and that, differing from a think tank because what they do is they actually litigate cases, which is just fantastic. Yeah, and economic liberties is one of their uh, four <laughs> pillars. Uh, the others being uh, free speech and uh, and school choice and property rights. And economic liberties is a major, major undertaking for IJ. The right to contract, the right to own and use 
property, the right to start your own business without absurd government uh, restrictions, most of which have been designed to keep competitors away. Right. Um, so uh, it's a noble undertaking. And what is it? IJ.org, I believe? IJ.org, yes. IJ. IJ.org is uh, the Institute for Justice. Also, check out Cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. Bob, just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much. Uh, so informative and interesting to talk about policy as opposed to politics on occasion. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with uh, Andrew Joppa, professor at Mercy College and author of Josephus of Oz. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. The work continues in spite of the pandemic. And you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston. Right now we have with us Andrew Joppa, professor at Mercy College and author of Josepha Savaz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. So, so much to talk about right now. I guess we should start off. Any, what's top of mind for you right now? Well, just real quick for your listeners, there's a movie on Prime Video called Bad Education. Bad Education is a movie worth seeing because it deals with the 
misappropriation of uh, funds from a public school system in Roslyn, Long Island. Now, I was uh, somewhat in the middle of that. I made three presentations out on Long Island during that time period for the Civic Action Council. Uh, the misappropriation of funds in Roslyn was $4.5 million by Frank Cezone, the superintendent of schools, and Pam Gocklin, the assistant superintendent for finance. Uh, I'm not suggesting this is a commonplace situation, but I would suggest, as someone who is deeply involved with public education, that the funds in many cases are not spent for education. At least I will leave it there. Uh -huh. If we look directly at that Roslyn situation in the late 90s or the early 2000s, $4.5 million was spent on buying uh, second homes and jewelry and cars and taking incredible vacations. Uh, so I think the movie is worth seeing just because for your, uh, for your listeners, it, it highlights a potential that they should be aware of as it pertains to the funding. Of, of the public school systems, Bob. So, uh, absolutely. I thought I'd mention that uh, to your listeners. Thank you for that. In fact, uh, we have a billion dollars here in Cuyahoga County that we spend on public education. And uh, there, there's been a resistance to auditing, a full audit of, of uh, the Department of Ed Education, as I understand it. So I think there's it's high time that we do that and should understand what, how the money is being spent. So uh, I'd like to turn... Uh, by the way, uh, you your wife uh, was born... I've forgotten what exactly what the link is when you're in the email that you sent. Maybe you could tell us about that. I, I just alluded to you, Bob, just in passing. that My wife was born in Oak Ridge during the Manhattan Project, and uh, so that's uh, sort of her claim to fame. I mean, that's she was born there. They they left there in like forty seven or forty eight, I guess. Uh, but you know, we we've gone back to Oak Ridge and uh, to sort of somewhat reestablish her roots and. It's an interesting backstory uh, in terms of in terms of my wife's situation. Her father was not directly involved with the uh, scientific aspect. He was uh, he was a uh, a project manager in terms of facility maintenance and development and so forth. But uh, that's that's where she was born at the Oak Ridge Hospital in the early 1947. So interesting. So Andy, uh, right now, Dr. Fauci is, I think, contaminated the uh, economic recovery. And uh, has demonstrated a lot of power that he really shouldn't have. You wrote a column about it. It's called "The Fauci Hippocratic," not not uh, Hippocratic, <laughs> but Hippocratic Oath. I thought it was so fascinating. Maybe you could tell us about it. Yeah, now, let me just allude to something else, and I will get there quickly, Bob. But I did want to allude to the concept of federalism uh, as it pertains to where the uh, opening should be uh, mandated in terms of the economy. Um, the president has been lauded for supporting federalism, and normally I support federalism, the shared powers between the states and the federal government. I don't think this is one of those situations, though. Uh, if we look at the Constitution and the Commerce Clause, the Commerce Clause says that the federal government must regulate commerce among the states, and the states cannot interfere with interstate commerce. Uh, as I would assess the situation, uh, it is impossible to believe that the economy can open uh, unless there is a coordinated activity across the uh, the wide expanse of the 50 states, and we weave Hawaii into that mix. Uh, for example, Bob, um, interstate trucking, if a truck leaves Florida and has to go through a variety of states to get to California, uh, those states may have different regulations as it pertains to the ability to to get gas, to have rest stops, to uh, to deliver their products at the various locations. 
So, again, I believe this is not the case where federalism should be invoked. I think we must use the Constitution where it says in the Commerce Clause uh, that the, uh, the uh, federal government has the obligation to regulate commerce among the many states. So in this case, and, and like many of, of us on the right, you know, we support Donald Trump, but, you know, if we disagree, we disagree. That's the way rational people function. Right. That is not a process you're going to see from the left. <laughs> they, uh, they, they, are, they are all in for, let's say, an Obama presidency. Uh, we on the right uh, tend to uh, support the president. I do completely. But if I disagree, I disagree. And I think this is one of those areas of disagreement, Bob. Well, thank you for sharing that, Andy. I mean, I, to, to my knowledge, I'm not seeing a lot of uh, uh, what's happening is states are opening in different ways, in some ways just using uh, very draconian measures in order to control the population. Others, like Florida, think that he's, uh, the, our governor is doing a great job. I don't know how it's affecting interstate commerce, but you raise an important point for sure. So let's talk about Fauci. I mean, uh, 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 by the way, your blogs, uh, you had two of them this week. They're both outstanding. One is about the Fauci hypocritic oath and also left speak. So interesting. I posted them both on my website under, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Let's talk about Fauci. Well, let's, let's stay with Fauci. And um, I've been writing on him for, for a while now. I I don't want to overstate the uh, the negativity uh, in terms of Fauci, but I think we must understand that uh, that Fauci has, uh, in my estimation, Bob, made no positive contribution to our response to COVID-19. Uh, he has contradicted himself. He has been wrong on many occasions. And, and to try to explore uh, Fauci, I, I use the Hippocratic Oath uh, as the standard by which we can uh, assess uh, of Fauci's, uh, the quality of Fauci's input. Uh, just to give you some of the provisions of the, of the Hippocratic Oath, um, one of the major provisions is that a, a physician or anyone in the medical community, if they don't know, must say they don't know. Now, uh, Fauci has offered the universal statement, I don't know everything, but when it comes to the specifics of, of a response, he has always known. And in so many cases, Bob, uh, he's been wrong. Uh, one of the other provisions of the Hippocratic Oath is that the patient must be encouraged to heal themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if we look at the issue of herd immunity, which has been essentially ignored within the, um, the American response, herd immunity would be the patient healing themselves. Right. Uh, also, a provision in the Hippocratic Oath is that uh, the physician and people in the medical community must be concerned not only with the patient, but the patient's family and economic stability. Mm -hmm. I would say certainly by, by those measurements, Fauci has not served the full role of a doctor or someone actively involved with the, with the medical response to COVID-19. And I know, again, I don't want to overstate, uh, overstate my condemnation of Fauci, uh, but I think we have to recognize that this is a man that has historically been wrong going back to the, to the AIDS response at the early part of his career, and right now, he has, uh, he has, first of all, earlier dismissed the, the importance of COVID-19 and stated the dramatic importance of it. He's rejected uh, hydroxychloroquine as a, uh, as a, uh, as a possible uh, treatment. Uh, and by the way, hydroxychloroquine that President Trump has indicated as using must be used with azithromycin and zinc. It just can't be used in isolation. Right. Uh, recently, we saw uh, Neil Cavuto, who was uh, on Fox, who... Uh, uh, loudly condemn President Trump for the audacity to 
uh, to self-medicate. And he didn't self-medicate, Bob. He was under the counsel and guidance of his own uh, White House physician. Uh, and again, uh, one can only wonder why there'd be such a vehement, vehement uh, pushback against hydroxychloroquine and its, and its supplemental aids. Uh, I would have to suggest that the reason is simple. Uh, Trump had been an early supporter of hydroxychloroquine, and that is all the press needed uh, to stand against it. Right. Uh, we get well, back to well, let me add this. Cabuto says that uh, the use of hydroxychloroquine will kill people. I would suggest over the long run, the, the failure to use hydroxychloroquine, uh, azithromycin, and zinc in combination will be a, uh, a death sentence for many who are not going to be able to access it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I'll, I'll add this. Neil Cavuto is uh, is incompetent, shouldn't be on the air, in my view. And number two, uh, Trump has made it very clear he's not going to appear on Cavuto's show, so he's he's got a chip on his, sh- <laughs> on his shoulder. So Well, I, I remember going back to um, September of last year, Bob, and uh, Cavuto had... had uh, scurrilously attacked the president for his uh, involvement with Stormy Daniels and the fact that the Mexicans did not build the wall. So here you have a man in the middle of trying to uh, to uh, restore America to its its prior greatness, and you have Neil Cavuto and on the only cable show, the only show probably on television that offers the slightest support for Donald Trump. And Cabuto is attack, attacking Trump on minutia. I know. Uh, now he goes after him for uh, um, having the audacity to use hydroxychloroquine. What we should be doing is praising the heroism of, of Donald Trump uh, for being a, an author of the early look at hydroxychloroquine and then uh, be willing to, uh, to use this drug to demonstrate uh, it not only gets effectiveness, but it's safety. Keeping in mind that hydroxychloroquine has been used for 60 years for malaria, uh, of course, like any drug, it must be used in the appropriate situations, and it, it can't be used with extremely vulnerable patients. Those are all guidelines for any medication. But again, hydroxychloroquine is the only drug that we've seen that has meaningful therapeutic impact on COVID-19. Well, uh, thank you so much, Andy, for saying that. We need to take a little break right now. Can you stick around? I will be here. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. For the best in food and drink as well as great live entertainment, go to the Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar. Formerly known as Weekend Willie's, the Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar has terrific new local owners offering a great new upscale decor and a fabulous new menu. Linda and I are weekly regulars to hear live blues, but you can stop by anytime for great food and drink, to watch your favorite sporting event, or to hear great live entertainment five nights a week. The Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar is located at 5310 Shirley Street, just off Pine Ridge Road, and it's open from 11 a.m. until close every day. Visit the website dogtoothnaples.com or call 431-7004. That's 431-7004. I hope we'll see you there.
Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by St. Matthew's House, a terrific organization. And they need your support now. You can do that by patronizing their businesses, also making a donation at stmatthewshouse.org. Also, uh, Bee's Diner, right there in Green Tree Shopping Center, terrific place. They do support uh, St. Matthew's House in a big way, but also do a great business for breakfast and lunch. I hope you'll patronize them. They're now back open. Uh, we continue the conversation with Andrew Jopp, a professor at Mercy College. Uh, Andy, thank you again for joining us. I think Lulabee is the place we should meet for breakfast very soon, Bob. Uh, you know, I couldn't be in more agreement, so let's uh, <laughs> let's follow up on that. So uh, yes. I, I want to move to your terrific, and by the way, remind our listeners, your columns are both on my website, bobharden.com. You can go to Correct Me If I'm Wrong. You'll find Andy's latest uh, uh, columns. The latest is a group, or I'm sorry, Left Speak. I loved it, Andy. Maybe you can tell us about it. Well, Left Speak is uh, developed primarily from the George uh, Orwell essay written in 1946, where he, he dealt with the corruption of political language, uh, which was you know, rampant uh, in 1946. And the point I make is essentially it's far more rampant today. Uh, if we look at the way the left uses language and the way that, uh, the way that language impacts on Americans, it, this is a major issue. I, I make the point that whoever controls the language controls the agenda. Whoever controls the agenda controls the outcomes. Whoever controls the outcomes wins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's a simpler matter that language is not just an incidental bauble in the political process. In many ways, it may be seen as the, the critical element in this process. Uh, I introduced the the essay with just a simple example, and I'm not going to make a case that there's anything inherently wrong with this, but it it should be understood. If we describe COVID-19 as a seasonal flu, that's one thing. Once we use the word pandemic, Mm -hmm. the word pandemic has a certain urgency to it, a certain uh, danger associated with the word. Pandemic simply means that the uh, disease is is widespread. It can be widespread uh, globally. It can be widespread by continent. It can be widespread by a country. And as I make the point, a pandemic could exist in isolation in Greenland, for example. Right. But once you use the word pandemic, you are into a whole new wor- a world uh, of response and fear, uh, I-, I might add. Right. Uh, so the point I basically make is, as Orwell made in 1946, is that language is a critical component of the political process. And if we look at who controls uh, the, the language, the defining element of language, almost all of that is being done by the American political left. 
Uh, and again, I'll just reinforce the point, Bob. It is not an incidental part of the political process. Uh, the point can be made that it may be the critical component of the entire political process. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. What I really appreciate about your column is that you give us a, a number of examples going through the alphabet and alphabetically, exa- actually. So if, if you have any doubts about what Andy's saying, I just hope you take a look at the column. It's so fascinating. And I mean, there you just see just everything like... Uh, uh, identity politics or, uh, you know, you, racist or all the things that are right now evoke certain responses that actually are, are so misleading and uh, simply support the, the agenda of the left. Well, there's no doubt. And this is not just uh, done accidentally or incidentally, Bob. This is a, a well-considered process. Language is, uh, is, is well thought out. I, I, I sometimes I think the Republicans and the right uh, conservatives are, are babes in the woods as it pertains to the, to the importance and the, the utilization of, uh, of language uh, as the component of their effectiveness. Uh, Donald Trump is, is better at it than certainly most conservatives. But again, I, as much as I, I admire Donald Trump, I think he's lacking in harnessing language. Uh, for the the impact effect it can have on Americans, and I'm talking here about positive impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so essentially, language is critical. George Orwell d- defined it, and I'm just my my piece. When it, if your listeners read it, I think will reinforce that, as you say. With I, I give a countless number of examples of just how language is being misused. Absolutely, one of the things that you, you have politics in the middle. You know, somebody, somebody says I'm an independent, or I, you know. <laughs> In many cases, that's just a front for being uh, a progressive who who, uh, claims to think independently. I've always rejected the position or the the existence of the moderate or the independent. uh, I've always thought those were cop-out positions of somebody who's trying to seem reasonable and and rational, uh, and yet what they are, if you look at the ultimate outcome of their voting uh, uh, results and their political positions taken, almost all of them are on the left. So I, I think these are these are cop out positions of people who want to seem more meaningful than they really are. Uh, I, I tend to reject the existence of the moderate in American politics. Absolutely. I mean, just to give a, a quick example, capitalism is equal to greed. For example, climate change is a uh, you know. <laughs> Yeah, go through the list. It's just really, uh, it, it captures so much of the truth about what's happening right now. Andy, I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here in the show. And again, I want to just re- uh, tell our listeners, you have to go to the top of my website. You'll see, correct me if I'm wrong, push on that uh, pull-down tab, and you'll find uh, both of these columns, plus many other columns by Andrew Joppa. Andy, always appreciate your commentary here in the show. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk soon, about Thank you so much. And... Go to breakfast at Lulabee's. Look forward to that. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston and author of so many books. He's written seven. His latest, Cyber Warfare, Targeting America, Our Infrastructure, and Our Future. Great read. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show. Here on the Bob Hartman Broadcasting Network.
Do you or a family member suffer from chronic pain in your knees, hips, or shoulders? Joint pain can be a nagging and serious problem requiring expert and compassionate care. I know I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. Until 2006, I was suffering debilitating pain and deformity in my knees. I couldn't enjoy biking or golf or even sleep without chronic pain as a constant companion. Thanks to Dr. George Markovich and the professional staff at the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, my pain is gone, and I'm back to doing the activities I enjoy with no pain. I have a lifestyle I can only imagine. Imagine prior to knee surgery, and you can too. Call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. They will thoroughly evaluate your condition, provide personalized, state-of-the-art treatment, and help you relieve your pain and get back to your active lifestyle. At the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, your care will be professionally managed through every phase of your recovery. For an initial consultation, call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, located off Tamiami Trail in Bonita Springs at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And uh, announcement about the new season is out. You can get tickets right now by visiting the website golfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us Professor Larry Bell, as I mentioned before the break. He's an endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He's also intellectually curious and scientifically curious. He's written seven books. Uh, his latest, Cyber Warfare, Targeting America, Our Infrastructure, and Our Future. I've read it. It's a terrific read. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's always a pleasure to be on. Thank you so much. Thank you, Professor. Well, you've written two really uh, thought-provoking columns uh, for Newsmax. Uh, your column is entitled On Point. Uh, one about the uh, coronavirus moral crusade. The other about... Uh, presidential candidate and previous uh, former vice president, Joe Biden. Maybe you can tell us about it. Yeah, I, I wrote about something that uh, I think a lot of people are aware of, and but, of course, it doesn't get into the mainstream media and so on, is that, uh, you know, I think that, I think hopefully the Democrats realize they have a real dilemma, and, uh, and it's, it's deteriorating, and it has to do, you know, it is, the dilemma is Joe Biden, where... Mm-hmm. You know, so many liabilities, and uh, and it's, it's pretty hard to ignore them. And uh, you know, one is uh, one one category has to do with with the fact that uh, at a time we have this coronavirus, I think that and 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 a lot of a lot of anger and angst about China. I think the Republicans and and probably wisely so are holding back right for now. Keep the you know keep the issue alive on 
fact that Hunter, Hunter Biden, you know, sunk a $1.5 billion deal with China for his, you know, for a company he co-founded. And, uh, and uh, at the time when Joe was vice president, sort of the point man on both China and Ukraine for the for the Biden administration, of course, also the Ukraine, Ukraine deal that uh, with Burisma, and and that was something where he he flew over, you know, flew with his, his dad on Air Force Two, and uh, came back with this you know, that that deal that, and then of course Joe was Joe Biden, vice president, was bragging about how. When Burisma was being investigated, uh, how he got the prosecutor fired, and, and you know, which was clearly an interference. So you have those issues, and then you have the issue with Tara Reid. You know, this, um, of course, you have the the Me Too movement with the with the women's movement, uh, and uh, Biden had nothing nice to say about Kavanaugh. Or trusting his his uh, word, you know, over the woman, so on. With during during the Kavanaugh hearings, and there's this obvious double standard when it comes to uh, his you know, accusations against him that are corroborated by some not witnesses, but by people that Tara Reid had confided with at the time. And, and uh, unlike Kavanaugh, who's who's never never had a corroborating uh, witness. And then you've got uh, in all all these issues you just can't can't possibly ignore them. But the one that the big standout is the guy can't put two sentences together. Yeah. You know, and, and and those of us who are you know, I'm 82 years old, and hopefully I'm hitting on uh, you know a few more soldiers than he is. <laughs> um, you know, it's 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 pretty scary when you think of uh, of Biden with all his gaffes uh, trying to negotiate with. Another world leader, when uh, you know when when he he gets so totally confused, can't hold a train of thought, and and uh, but but they're they're stuck with him because you know the only you know there's really no way for them to wangle their way out of you know to to find another candidate. He's, he's certainly not going to retire yeah. or you know, resign, and uh, then they got you know they got you know they got. Uh, Bernie in the in the wings, and and Bernie's got the youth vote, and so on. So, I think they've got a real dilemma. I don't think anyone can really ignore it, and it looks like a train wreck, uh, you know, about to happen. You know, I agree with that. What he's got going for him is the mainstream media who will ignore all of these gas and won't bring up any of the things that you've discussed right now. So, in other words, they'll become non-issues on the mainstream media. Albeit that, you know, the, the audiences for, for example, uh, CNN and others are, tends to go down by the day. But nevertheless, uh, you know, when people tune in to, to MSNBC and all these other uh, outlets, media outlets, none of this stuff is heard. I, I have one theory that I almost don't want to, to mention, but what if uh, Biden's choice for the vice presidential candidate was President Barack Obama? Well, I don't you know, that's I think he's committing he's gonna he's gonna get a woman now if you if you said one of his Michelle Obama, uh-huh. uh would he would he do that? I'm thinking, well, that's certainly possible. But he's 
you can bet you know that the Sanders has an awful lot of leverage over over Biden right now, and, and so he's going to push. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very far left. And of course, it's going to be a woman. I preferably for them, it'd be a black woman. Uh-huh. And um, you know, so they're. I, I think I think they're running off the cliff on the left, and and uh, of course we'll see. The, the the hopeful thing I have is that even some rather uninformed people, when they get into the into the voting booth, if they first of all, it's a question: Who's going to vote? You know, what will turn out to drive out the vote, and who's going to be motivated to vote? The second issue is once you get in the voting booth, and we're talking also about independence, mm-hmm. and we're in the middle of a crisis, which is which is really like being at war and and it's a financial crisis as well as a health crisis and you're you think about your children and you're thinking about the future and you want people want certainty and they want comfort that there's leadership are they going to vote for someone who's seen now and i'll use that word very you know very openly yeah. you know are you going to vote for somebody who's seen see now who's on the wrong side of every single issue and hopefully hopefully the public has enough, uh, you know, desire to not jump off the cliff that they'll make the right decision. But then again, who knows? Who knows indeed. I will point out, having read your book, Cyber Warfare, Targeting America, Our Infrastructure, and Our Future, uh, it, it is we are in a very scary time right now. We need to have leadership and, and somebody who's willing to stand up to, China, to the uh, communist Chinese and to others. Uh, as you put it, uh, and uh, as I would summarize, I hope I get this right, is that we're kind of in a rock fight living in a glass house. In other words, we're so vulnerable to others because of cyber warfare. And we need somebody making good decisions about this, in my opinion, because uh, the the communist Chinese have bought Joe Biden, in my opinion, uh, vis-a-vis what's happened with Hunter Biden and others. I, quite frankly, would be very concerned about the results if he were the president. Well, it's, it's pretty terrifying, you know, the... <clears throat> Looking at the cyber warfare, and now we have, of course, the coronavirus, and and there's question about you know did it did it fly over in a bat or did it get cooked up in a vat in in, in China, you know, whatever. But you know, I think you know the, the prevailing thought as well. It wasn't. It was whatever way it was. It was a screw up. It was unintentional. It wasn't really warfare. But it opens up our eyes to the fact that. There's so much in common with with the, the bio, you know, the bio warfare and the cyber warfare, where mm-hmm. they happen, you know, it's it just, uh, you know, at, at, in a blink they happen and they they spread so fast, and they basically they work the same way in terms of the they you know the bio war, you know the, the uh, you know the uh, cyber warfare turns computers into little zombies that infect other computers, and viruses have their own way of infecting other cells to create little zombie viruses and and they they have so many things in common in 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 a global world and, and, it, and we've always been a global world the the oceans that used to separate us and give us a sense of security are meaningless now yeah. in that regard and and so it's another world where i think this is a, another wake-up call for how how interconnected everything is and and with regard to you know you know, like you said, we live in the the glassiest house in a stone fight because the more wired together you are, the more dependent you are, or the more you know accessible you are to 
to the internet and communications, right. you know, you're you're on. You know, uh, the more vulnerable you are to anyone being able to access you and do bad things, and so we. It's another world, and there's no simple solution. Absolutely. Again, Professor Larry Bell, I encourage you to go to Newsmax.com. Just check out his columns on point. I think both are very interesting this week about Joe Biden and about coronavirus. Also, his book, Cyber Warfare, Targeting America, Our Infrastructure, and Our Future. It's a must-read. Very informative and interesting. Professor, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Thank you, Bob. Be safe. You as well. Thank you, Professor. He's in Houston, Texas, of course. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope uh, you'll join us tomorrow. We'll have great guests. By the way, if you would like to get the newsletter that I'm sending out every day now after the show, you can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. Always appreciate getting your thoughts. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast. I can't find my... Here it is. Uh, Or wherever you are, namaste. so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>